So we've been in a Lenten series. We're in the 40 days of Lent that lead up to Easter. It's a time of uh, thinking about our humanity. Lent is marked, the beginning of it, in liturgical churches by a process of putting ashes in the shape of a cross on your forehead and saying, from ashes you came, or from dust you came, and to dust you will return. And it's really a time for us to dwell on our humanity, our mortality. And for most of us, that's been on the forefront of our minds for quite a while uh, because of uh, the global pandemic that we're in, that everyone everywhere is experiencing death and mortality a lot closer uh, than we would in in other times uh, in normal circumstances. And often we also accompany Lent with uh, some kind of fasting. And this year we've not emphasized that because of all of the forced fasting uh, that we've had to do as a global community. And so this morning, as we look in this text in our Lenten series here, getting ever closer to Easter, we're continuing in part five of this series called Jesus Walks, where we watch as Jesus walks through Uh, just a couple hundred miles around from where he was born, proclaiming this cosmic event called the kingdom of heaven. And uh, in it, in in these gospels and in his walking and his journey as this itinerant rabbi, this itinerant preacher and pastor, he is dropping all of these jewels about how our thinking about the world around us can be expanded and enlarged in different ways. And so this morning, he shares uh, in the Gospel of John a similar phrase to what we've looked at before, but he uses a different metaphor. And we're going to take a look at that metaphor of this seed uh, and it dying in the ground. And um, out of it, I hope that we get a sense of the process and necessity of sacrifice that's ingrained in the kingdom of heaven and the cosmos. And that sounds like a lot, and, and it kind of is, but on the ground level, it's just we're going to be looking at our limitations as human beings, how those are designed to help us to thrive and live in the kingdom of heaven, that our limitations can help us to thrive and live in the kingdom of heaven and even produce more than we ever would have thought. So that's what we're going to look at uh, for the next few minutes together. And before I do that, I'd like to pray. So, Lord, would you be with us uh, in this time, in your word, whether we're at home or here in the pews, and would you speak to us? Would you encourage us? Would you inspire us? Would you give us faith um, to live in the light of the kingdom of heaven? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, I get phone calls and texts regularly for probably the last almost year of people wanting to buy my house. Is anybody getting those? I don't know. There's, apparently there's like an international market for houses in Memphis right now. That there's like people in China and other places in the world who are like hiring Americans to be the ones that like call and try to buy houses that are kind of like managing this thing because the, the values are such in Memphis that it's such a good time to buy homes and resell them and things like that. So I get these calls all the time. 
And I always, you know, just hang up right away, text messages. I even have family members, like my dad sent me a message and said, oh, I got this message and, and, and my brother. And I've like just stopped even responding to those too because they're so frequent. And on top of that, you know, we watch in our little neighborhood right by East High School, uh, we watch houses come up for sale. And every time one comes up for sale, Becky and I talk about it. We's like, we say, well, we could buy that house ourselves and uh, fix it up and rent it out. And uh, we had some long conversations about it in the beginning. And, you know, I recently just started articulating this thing that had been bouncing around in my mind when we had that conversation. And it was really just this, that if we were to buy that house... Uh, that would limit the other things we could do in life. That would limit her schedule. That would limit how much she could interact with the kids. And right now, Benjamin's had to be uh, almost homeschooled uh, this whole year for first grade. Um, and we have two younger kids, Malia and Xavier. It would limit my free time and, and my mental and, and emotional energy to have that home. And so... What I was trying to communicate and, and say to, to, to my wife, to Becky, is, look, yes, we could do this, and we could make a little bit of extra income, but it would, it would limit what we could do in other areas of our life. And so there's a trade-off happening there. And I think this has a lot to do with the passage here, and that um, Jesus is talking about the way that we are designed to live in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, same, same thing, just depends on the, which gospel, the, the word that's used there. Um, and, he, and he's talking about how can one be productive in seeing the world and the universe this way? And that it's going to make you uh, be conscientious about choices that you make and how those limit your perspective, or broaden your perspective, limit your relationships, or broaden them, or deepen them. And so that's kind of what I want us to be thinking about as we look at this passage here and start uh, in the first couple of verses here in verse 20 through 23, which are for sort of like comedic reasons. They're some of my favorite verses uh, in this section. So uh, verse 20 we, we uh, were at this place where Jesus has just made this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So he's come in on a donkey, huge crowds, everybody's calling, yelling out Hosanna. They think he's going to establish himself as an earthly king in the traditional way, and he's going to rule over everything. He's going to overthrow the Roman government. And that's kind of the point that we're at here. And so Jesus is surrounded by lots of people, lots of activity, and here we start in, in verse 20. He's a couple days from the cross. It says in verse 20, Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. And the reason why it's important that, that we know that they're Greeks is because Jesus and his posse are Jewish people. So we've got Jews and Gentiles, right? Uh, so verse 21, it says, They came to Philip, one of the twelve disciples, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. And then Philip went to tell his brother Andrew, and then 
Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Hey, have you ever, have you ever had to tell somebody something and you knew you were going to need a little bit of backup because they were really busy or really preoccupied, and so you like grabbed your, your buddy to go with you to make sure like you just had a little bit of reinforcement there? That's what I think about when I, I think about Philip getting his brother. He's like, I don't want to do this alone. I don't want to bug Jesus when he's so busy for these Greek guys over here. And, and you see why, too, because in verse 23... Uh, so in verse 22, they told Jesus, hey, these Greek guys want to talk to you, right? And Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Like, come, what? I mean, is this John's editing or is this really how frustrating it would have been to talk to Jesus at this time? Like, you're like, hey, hey Jesus, do you want a sandwich? And he's like, uh, the kingdom of heaven coming, uh, riding on the clouds. And you're like, but do you want a sandwich, right? Like, come on, man. And so he says this, and I think about uh, in, in my life the times when I've tried to avoid conversations. You ever try to avoid having certain kinds of conversations? And maybe you're, maybe you're an anxious person, and you just have a lot of anxiety about the conversation. You worry about it. You process it out loud constantly uh, and that kind of thing. Or maybe you, you kind of like get depressed about it and really avoidant, and you try to avoid the person and the conversation. Uh, I was, I was at, a, at, at the gym a couple years ago, and there was somebody there who used to go to Christ City and had left, and they were in there working out. And I mean, he was trying so hard not to look in my direction, but it's a big open gym. There's no, there's no like barriers or things to like block stuff. And <laughs> it got to the point, it was so ridiculous. I finally just went over to him and stood in front of him and say, hey, how you doing, buddy? And shook his hand just to just to get over the, the whole weirdness of the situation. When I was a kid, I was, actually, uh, I was actually pretty afraid of a lot of confrontations to where I would, uh, I'd ask my, my mom or my dad like at McDonald's to like order for me or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, as I got older, I, I got into a place where I, I became comfortable with conflict and I could enter into it. Uh, I could enter into confrontation pretty easily. Um, but uh, when I think about this passage, <laughs> and I think about how Jesus is responding, I'm like, is he, is he having a, a problem like just answering these guys? Like, I don't want to talk to these Greek guys right now. I'm busy, and he's just deflecting here. What's going on? That's what it seems like. Uh, but at a closer look, He's actually giving this really kind of deep riddle of a response, something I wish that I was like savvy enough to do. I'm usually just like, no, I don't want to talk to those people right now. I don't want to do that. But Jesus is doing something way deeper and way cooler. So he says in the next couple, uh, next verse, he says, uh, verse 24, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed but if it dies, it produces many seeds. So we're going to spend some time unpacking this metaphor that Jesus uses here because it's, it's got a lot of layers to it, as many of the things that Jesus says does. And the first layer, of course, is, is himself. He's talking about himself. He says, the hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he says, Unless this kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it just remains just one thing by itself. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. 
And so you start to, uh, the disciples, I don't think Philip and Andrew got it, got it then, uh, because they were, they were still seeing these events unfold in front of them. But uh, it starts to make sense why he's saying this in response to meeting with the Greeks. He's saying, look, I've got this task ahead of me. It's going to actually involve me giving up my physical life. And the result of me giving up that physical life is going to be a multiplication of my presence, of what I bring into the world, right? So this is Jesus' death on the cross, his atonement for our sin through that death, and the multiplication of God's presence in the world through that act and through that event. Extremely important. Now, there are some implications for us here uh, in our lives right now as well and how we live. And here's why I say that. When you look at verse 24 in his response, so he's saying, look, I can't meet with the Greeks right now, but soon I'm, my, my presence is going to be everywhere. The Greeks, whoever, people all across the world, they will interact with me then in that way. But he says in verse uh, 24, he says, truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. He's talking about this idea in general, not just specific to him. And then as we read on, he uh, starts to highlight this even more. He says, anyone, in verse 25, who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. So he's given us this illustration, and immediately, if you've been in church for a while or you've been exposed to doctrines of Christianity, you're going to think about Jesus dying on the cross. But Jesus himself also, he expands this idea beyond himself, and he says, look, if you claim to be somebody who serves me, you're going to follow after me. Now, literally, is he saying that everyone who's following Jesus is going to die on a cross? Of course not. We know that's not true. So what does he mean by that? What does he mean by this personal metaphor and then this bigger metaphor? So he's talking about a seed, a grain of wheat falling into the ground. And literally in the Greek it says into the ground. And so we see this picture of a seed, and he says the seed is dying. And it, uh, it's immersed in the dark, in this deep, rich soil. And as a result of being buried and dead in the ground then it starts to produce something more. It starts to produce more of itself, and then that plant grows up, and that plant produces a lot more seeds, right? And so the interesting thing here is that, and Jesus does this all the time, he's pointing to something that naturally happens in the world. See, my understanding for so long of the events around Jesus's life is that they were kind of something like forced onto the world. Like it was just God like forcing this thing that wouldn't have otherwise made sense 
onto the scene. And it didn't make sense to me for a long time. In a lot of ways, I'm like, okay, Jesus, he dies on the cross, but somehow that's good for me, and it saves me in some kind of way, and this is really strange to me, to the point where I would even, I'd heard preachers saying like, well, well, what's the point if Jesus dies for your sins, you get baptized, and then you get to go to heaven, like, what's the point in baptism of even coming back up out of the water? Like, just hold me down, let me wake up in heaven. And then their conclusion was, well, the point is, you get up out of the water just so you can go tell other people about this. And so then the conclusion then is my life on earth here, all these years that I live, these breaths that I take, the works of my hands are meaningless. And that was insufficient to me. That was not a compelling idea to me. And thankfully, I don't think that was Jesus's idea, and I I see it here. I think he's pointing to the ways that the universe and the cosmos work. That if he can say, my death and resurrection can be seen and illustrated in just a seed falling into the ground and producing more of itself, then that means these things matter. And there are things for me to learn about this natural world around me and how I am to function in it and the value that it contains and the worth of my actions and how they relate to that. And it also means I'm supposed to die. Like, there's no getting around that here. And I think this is incredibly important. I think in Jesus' time, Uh, death was not something that was so far removed and separated from everyone that you would encounter uh, dead bodies. And that would be something there were rituals for to cleanse yourself because it was just sort of an inevitable thing. And that we could talk to our children about these things. And we could be with our loved ones in their last moments and it would be a natural thing. In fact, the death and resurrection of Lazarus just took place earlier in this chapter. And so in this, I think, is a kernel of truth (laughs) about how we deal with our mortality and how that has to do with the everlasting life that Jesus is talking about. This is an appropriate Lent message. As I was thinking about this, the the inevitability of death that Jesus is talking about here, and that there's a certain way we can can actually live uh, leaning towards it instead of running away from it and trying to build up as many barriers as we can from it, I began to think about this guy, this doctor, he's, he's an author, and his name's Atul Gawande, and he wrote this book called Being Mortal, and and he's a geriatrics doctor, so he works with old folks who are um, needing care at the end of their life. And I, I want to read a couple of quotes from his, his work because he highlights some things about death in our culture and how it relates to what Jesus is talking about here. He's writing from a medical perspective. He's not writing as a religious person, although the implications of what he writes are unavoidably religious. 
he's talking about this idea of death and the idea of death being having meaning to it or being meaningless. And that story I shared with you about the pastor about being dunked and baptized, that to me described a meaningless life. My life is merely to speak a, a, a few phrases to people and nothing else matters. Here's what he has to say about death and the meaning of it. He says the only way death is not meaningless is to see yourself as part of something greater, a family, a community, a society. If you don't, mortality is only a horror. But if you do, it is not. Loyalty, said Royce, solves the paradox of our ordinary existence by showing us outside of ourselves the cause which is to be served. Interesting choice of words. The cause to be served. And inside of ourselves, the will which delights to do this service and which is not thwarted but enriched and expressed in such service. So something that gives us life to serve, that enriches our life and the expression of it. In more recent times, psychologists have used the term transcendence for a version of this idea. <laughs> I just, I'm almost done with this quote, but I can't ever read that part without laughing because he says, the whole, the whole sentence is so funny to me. He says, in more recent times, psychologists have used the term transcendence. Like, or ancient religion, maybe? <laughs> Transcendent psychologists, wow, this is novel. Above the level of self-actualization in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, they suggest the existence in people of a transcendent desire to see and help other beings achieve their potential. So what a doctor here, apart from any organized religious thinking, the conclusion that he's coming to is that our life holds meaning when it transcends being just about us. That our life is about serving some greater purpose, the greater community, the greater world in a way that enriches us and the world around us. That we, as human beings, are meant, as we are coming to the conclusions of our lives, to think about and see the ways in which we have transcended beyond ourselves. Thank God for psychology to make that plain to us. I love psychology. I just think, I just think it's really funny uh, that, that that was his conclusion uh, from psychologists. So... Let's, let's get back to the, the text here. In verse 25, Jesus says, Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep their life, that will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So it's a very similar thing Jesus is expressing here to what I just read from Dr. Gawande. And uh, what might throw you off a little bit in verse 25 is his use of this thing called a Hebraism. 
Uh, you know how we have idioms in the English language, like it's raining cats and dogs and things like that? So in the Hebrew Bible, you can see this, this phrase used to describe various things. He says, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So um, in, in the scriptures, uh, the phrase to hate one and love the other thing is used frequently. Uh, well, maybe not frequently, but at least a handful of times. So like, for example, um, describing of the patriarch that he, uh, he uh, hated his wife Leah and he loved uh, Rebecca. Um, now, uh, right in another part of the text there in Genesis, we can read that he loved Leah less. And that's literally what this phrase hated one and loved the other is meant to communicate. So this, uh, from the book of Proverbs, where it says, whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. The idea here is preference, or showing favor for one thing over the other. So um, if you, if you uh, prefer to not discipline your child well, that means you love your child less than the idea of disciplining them, right? Or um, Jesus says, uh, anyone who wants to follow after me must hate their father and mother in order to follow me. Now, does Jesus mean hate your father and mother? Of course not. That's one of the Ten Commands, honor your father and mother. But he's saying, which relationship will you give preference to? Okay, you following me? Does that make sense? The relationship... Uh, with God or with the desires and, and wants of your parents. And so he says, whoever loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So, how is this eternal life found through the death of a seed? And I think it's it's, it brings us back again to the beginning of the scriptures where the, where the God of the universe becomes a gardener, plants a garden. But he says this to uh, the first people, go, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, rule over it. So there's this idea of death connected to multiplication in this seed and in the very beginning of what was happening here um, in the stories of the book of Genesis, where there's this idea, this correlation between a literal death of a seed and growth and multiplication and this more metaphorical idea of transcending our lives, transcending just a life that's about us and our ego and the life that we can scratch out, the things that we can grab for ourselves and avoid uh, with anti-aging cream and everything else, this impending death that's coming. How do we make significance out of that? Here's one more, I want to give you one more quote from this Dr. Gawande uh, that highlights what Jesus says there. Whoever loves their life will lose it, and whoever hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And, and he, uh, he's talking about this study where they give two people, two groups of people, different treatment at the ends of their life. One treatment is to give them as much care to keep them 
alive as long as possible. Like, that's the only goal. And that's his critique in this book. That's what modern medicine does. Regardless of any other factors, that's what modern medicine tries to do. Just keep the human frame breathing, the heart pumping, those types of things. And then another group that had people just caring for them as human beings with desires for a more transcendent or purposeful end. And here's what was found in this study. It was in 2010. The study from the Massachusetts General Hospital uh, had these startling findings. The researchers randomly assigned 151 patients with stage four lung cancer, like Sarah's, to one of two possible approaches to treatment. Half received usual oncology care. So just keeping people alive, right, with as much intervention as possible and just saying uh, how comfortable or uncomfortable are you with the treatment. The other half received uh, the usual oncology care plus parallel visits with a palliative care specialist. And these are specialists in preventing and relieving the suffering of patients. And to see one, no determination of whether they are dying or not is required. If a person has serious complex illness, palliative specialists are happy to help. The ones in the study discussed with the patients, the ones in the study discussed with the patients their goals and priorities for if and when their condition worsened. The result those who saw a palliative care specialist stop chemotherapy sooner, entered hospice far earlier, which is where, when you've decided not to do any more treatments and you just want to die well, essentially, experienced less suffering at the end of their lives, and they lived 25% longer. In other words, our decision-making in medicine has failed so spectacularly that we have reached the point of actively inflicting harm on patients rather than confronting the subject of mortality. There's that thing about confrontation again, popping up. Yeah, so it seems, it seems that what we don't need to do is try to preserve our physical life, to love our life, as Jesus puts it in this Hebraic way, uh, more than anything else, and prop it up and try to sustain it and elongate it as far as we can. That seems to be not just true in this medical sense or in a religious sense, but both at the same time. That we're meant to die, but we're meant also to transcend that death. And that when people are treated that way, they actually live better. So it seems there is not such a dichotomy between heaven and earth. I know I'm getting a little deep on y'all this morning. I'm sorry. That's just uh, when I'm left alone too long, this is what happens, right, in the pandemic. Maybe I'll have some more topical, like, dating series or something when when we're all back uh, together. So it seems to be now there's a reason we don't do this, and that is seen in Jesus in verse 27. In verse 27, what does he do there? What is he expressing? It says that his spirit, his soul is troubled. Why is that? He says, what could I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was to this very reason I came to this hour. So Jesus is actually scared. He's afraid of what's coming. 
And he's contemplating, should he ask God to deliver him from this eventual fate, this mortal ending to his physical life? And he comes to the conclusion, no, of course not. That's what he's here to do. And then he gets also a confirmation for the benefit of other people that God is with him in this divine situation here with him. So it seems, I might be wrong, but it just doesn't seem like it from all this evidence from different parts of our life, that is the spiritual task of every human being to come to terms with the end of what we know our life to be about. And that doing that somehow gives us the ability to transcend and participate in this life and death and sacrifice that Jesus is engaging in. He says, those who serve me must follow me. In the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 8, the writer says this, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Were we therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life? For we have been united with him in a death like his we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be a slave to sin, enslaved to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. I can feel I can personally, I can feel the strain of Paul's pen trying to encapsulate these huge ideas, these monumental ideas of the purposes of our life. And by the way, this idea of sin sometimes is really unhelpful in these contexts when we don't translate it appropriately. The, the most simple translation of sin is to miss the mark. And what else are we talking about but a life where the mark has been missed? Of what's important, of what's significant. To just live physically as long as we can regardless of purpose or connection to our community, uh, to those around us. Or is there more? Yeah, death is not meaningless to those who see themselves as a part of something greater, transcendent. We can't, we can't change this about the universe. We can't reorient the way that God has created this world. It is what it is. So we can fight against it. We can try to love our life more, or we can seek to embrace it to embrace that we are part, a small part, of this infinite process of death and life that the seed in the soil shows us so clearly. Uh, as we come to the, the conclusion points of, of what I wanted to share this morning, I've got a few more things I wanted to uh, quote, and this comes from another writer, a man named Wendell Berry, and he's a farmer in Kentucky. And he's also a writer, 
Um, I've been reading his stuff for many, many years, introduced to him by a friend who works in agriculture. And when I looked at this passage, I couldn't help but think of his writing and how he explains some things about agriculture and particularly soil. And when I think about this passage, uh, you know, in the NIV, I think it says that the, that the, um, the seed falls on the soil. But, it, but in the Greek, where it's tra- the NIV and all the translations come from, it says, into the soil, like down into the soil. And Wendell Bayer, you can't read too much of his work without uh, hearing this idea around topsoil. And topsoil is the top layer of the earth. And the things going on in the topsoil and the atmosphere keep human beings alive on the planet. Because topsoil is where plants grow, where things that we eat and other animals eat grow. And I want you to imagine, because who are we in that illustration, in that metaphor of the seed falling to the earth? What are we? What object are we? What object are we? We're the seed, right? So I want you to imagine that you're that seed and you're in this topsoil, and the topsoil is dark and rich. It's black in color. And in the topsoil are tiny little microorganisms. There's decaying leaves and other plants and vegetables and things like that that have fallen. There's uh, feces from birds and other things in there. So there's things that are dying and decaying. And the soil is warm from all the energy that's being exchanged from the microbes that are eating and the things that are dying and decaying in there. And you are that seed. And that topsoil, I want you to imagine, is everything around you. The other people that you know, the neighborhood you live in, the country you live in, the environment, the where you get your food, the sunlight, your whole life, which is the kingdom of God. And what happens if we resent or ignore or seek to get out of that topsoil and have our own way of pressing through reality and keeping ourselves from dying in it and becoming a part of that process. Here's what Wendell Berry says about this topsoil. He says, we cannot speak of topsoil, indeed we cannot know what it is, without acknowledging at the outset that we cannot make it. We can care for it or not. We can even say, we can even, as we say, build it, but we can do so only by assenting to, preserving, and perhaps collaborating in its own processes. To those processes themselves, we have nothing to contribute. We cannot make topsoil, and we cannot make any substitute for it. We cannot do what it does. Huh. So, we're in this kingdom of God. When we understand it in right relationship, we realize there are things that we can impact and influence in it, and that there are things the way things are supposed to work. And although death is scary, and in some ways, uh, and this is even in the scriptures, it's, it's an enemy, here, 
there seems to be a redemption of this idea or maybe, um, yeah, of the idea that death is the enemy and that it was actually inherent in the process of life all along. And Jesus is exposing this. One of the ways that Paul refers to Jesus in the New Testament is the first fruits of the new creation. Isn't that interesting? So when we understand this in our life, getting back to the very practical, we go back to where this scene starts. Some guys are like, hey, we want to see Jesus. Philip goes to Andrew, Andrew comes, uh, and Philip and Andrew come and they get Jesus, and Jesus sends them on this riddle about, about life and about uh, seemingly not about these, these Greek guys. But um, just so I don't leave you with absolutely nothing practical, <laughs> although that's not my main goal of this message, is to say we live with a lot of limitations. And a lot of us have been told, especially if you find yourself in like the 20 to 40, even 50-year-old bracket, that basically your life is limitless. It is what you want it to be. You can make it this. You could do that. You could do anything you want. But just like I was talking to my wife about buying a house, there are limitations to life. And when you put your hand to some things, you are going to ignore other things. When you are focused on preserving your uh, safety and your wealth and um, prolonging your physical existence in this space, you're fighting against the entire cosmos the kingdom of God, the way things were designed. And there is a way to look towards your own mortality with a transcendent purpose. And that is shown to us in the life of Jesus. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that this parable and these metaphors are used by Jesus to let us know that we are not fighting against the good creation that God has made, but we get to be a part of it and to transcend it. And so that means you don't have to run around like a crazy person trying to meet everybody's needs, trying to protect everybody from their feelings and their life and their problems and all of that stuff. That means that you can focus on a small little piece of topsoil that God has given you and take the time to look at it and to nourish it and to learn it and to slow down, and to be still. And as Wendell Berry says in, in, in one of his most famous manifestos, it's called the Farmer's Manifesto, he says, and practice resurrection. That's what Jesus is telling us to do. It's so weird. Practice resurrection. That you will do what I do. You will follow me. You will die with transcendent purpose if you follow after me. All right, that's enough. Uh, let me pray for us, and uh, we'll come to the communion table. Lord, thank you uh, for the Lenten season, for a chance to focus on our mortality and the shared mortality that we have 
with Jesus and the shared transcendence that we also have with him. Would you meet us here at the table that you gave us to meet with you at? Would you give us not escape from this world or even our struggles in this world, but would you help us to find new purpose in them? Amen.